invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6, to Philippians chapter 1, and then where we are, where we reside in our series here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And again, those are Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Philippians chapter 1, the very beginning of Philippians, and then our passage in 1 Timothy 3. Let's begin with Acts chapter 6. And a reminder, the Acts is the Acts of the uh, the acts of the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit and through by the Holy Spirit through the apostles that he has chosen. And it tells the continuing uh, ministry of Jesus Christ in the early church. It's a sequel to the Gospels in a way. In Acts chapter 6, the setting here is in Jerusalem. After the Holy Spirit has come upon the church and that... Uh, the church was how the church was operating in its very early days. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily food distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation or the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and, the whole, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And now Philippians chapter 1, just verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, verses 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, 
managing their children in their own households well, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, having heard your word, we pray now here in these few moments that by your spirit you would help us to see and understand and to apply the truth that you have given us in this, these ancient words that are still yet living and active because these are breathed out from you. And so help us to, to understand and to apply the word you have given to us this morning. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. So we're continuing our series on Entrusted with the Gospel as we're going through 1 Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy eventually. And uh, last week, or the last couple weeks, we looked at the office of uh, overseer or elder. And so two weeks ago, we kind of established uh, the office here. He begins chapter 3, Paul begins chapter 3, writing to, to Timothy, who he has left in the ancient city of Ephesus for the church there to kind of put things in order and um, oversee the church. And he gave some instructions we see there in verse 1 of chapter 3 on searching for overseers. And he gives the qualifications for overseers. We looked at that last week, but a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at the concept of overseers in the church and that overseers were the same or synonymous with um, uh, overseers and elders and pastors are all terms that are used interchangeably. If you happen to miss that a couple of weeks ago, I encourage you to go find that on the website and listen to it. And so we, we saw the several terms that were used and uh, how they were used interchangeably. We saw elder, which was presbyteros. There was overseer, which is episkopos. And then pastor or shepherd, which is uh, poimen. Well, that is one of two offices in the church. Now, a reminder, the church are saints. And we're going to get into this a little more next week in the, the end of this uh, fantastic chapter three here. Uh, but the church are saints. They're all professing members or professing persons of professing faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what makes up the church. And out of that membership of the church are selected certain individuals for special office and service in the church. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that there are two offices in the church. There's the office of elder, overseer, or pastor, and the other office was the office of deacons. So there's two offices in the church, in the church today, elders and deacons. And you saw that in our reading, the Philippians passage, where Paul, is, Paul and Timothy are saying that they're servants of Jesus Christ. And that's a different Greek word for servants. It could be sometimes translated as slaves. They are slaves of Christ Jesus. And then he's writing to all the saints who are at Philippi. Now, he here is addressing the entire church. Uh, saints are 
not a particular group of hyper-spiritual Christians or the only ones that are truly saved, as is uh, in the Catholic Church's definition, those are the only ones that we know are really in heaven. And that's something that you can prove after you die and after it was demonstrated, you've had a couple of miracles performed, and then you could be sainted by the church. But biblically speaking, saints are everyone who is a true believer in Jesus Christ and is a member of the church. So when he's writing to the saints at Philippi, he's just saying, I'm writing to all of you Christians at Philippi. So if you are a Christian, you're a professor in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. Does that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> Sometimes like, Ugh. but it saint just means the one who is set apart. You've been set apart and sanctified for Jesus Christ. So he's writing to the saints. And then out of that number, he says, with the overseers and the deacons. He's basically addressing the entire church and the leadership of the church, the two offices in the church, overseers and deacons. And we see this as well, those two offices here in this entire chapter. Notice, remember how he begins chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he aspires a noble task. And then he goes into the qualifications for an overseer. And then in verse 8, he says, deacons likewise. Likewise. I'm, I'm addressing the other office in the church. And that is deacons. And then he goes into the, the qualifications for those deacons, which is quite similar, except for a couple of key spots. So there are your two offices in the church. Out from among all of the members in the professing church, you would have two offices that are out of a special task in the church. Those are who are elders, overseers, and pastors, and those who are deacons. So let me go now to the word deacon. Where does that word come from, right? Deacon. Um, and this it's, it's actually a kind of a, a transliteration. It's kind of the fancy way of saying it. They just took the Greek word and then took the Greek words and then used English letters for it and then created an English word out of that Greek word. So de you can see the resemblance there. Deacon from the Greek word diakonos. Let me hear you say diakonos. Diakonos. And a diakonos... It's where we get deacon. It's just a, a servant. It's just a minister. Somebody who comes alongside to support, as you can see in the verb here, from diakoneo, to serve or to support or to minister to, to take care of, of one's needs or to serve as a deacon. And then the, uh, the term given to that, that whole ministry uh, is diakonia, and it usually translated in the New Testament as ministry. Ministry. Okay, we'll get to that here in a moment. But it's basically a servant or a minister who provides support and service or uh, is holding an office of ministry in the church. Ministry in the church. So what are the distinctions? Okay, we, you just... You can see this. You can see Philippians refers to two offices. You can see 1 Timothy chapter 3 refers to two offices. Okay, what's the difference? 
between these two offices? Is it, is it like the two branches of government, or, you know, or uh, two, two branches or two houses of one branch of the government? You have like the Senate and the House, and what, how do we make sense of these two different offices? Well, let me kind of give this out to you here at, at the beginning, and then we'll go look at some of the passages. What is the distinction between elders, overseers, and pastors and on the one hand, and deacons on the others. What's the difference? Well, what do elders do and what do deacons do? And how do they relate to each other? Let me kind of give this to you um, in very simplified way, simplified form. Elders and overseers and pastors over the church are the spiritual leaders over the church. Deacons uh, assist, minister, along with the elders, overseers, and pastors of the church by handling the material needs of the church. So uh, elders and overseers deal primarily with the spiritual needs of the congregation, the biblical, uh, the teaching of the Bible and teaching uh, the, the word of God, whereas deacons primarily are dealing with the material and the physical. Okay, so... Quite simply, elders, overseers, and pastors are primarily concerned with the spiritual oversight of the church, and deacons are primarily concerned with the material oversight of the church. Elders, overseers, and pastors um, attend to the spiritual needs. Deacons assist by attending to the material needs, and, and often um, that includes monetary needs. And let me get to you uh, the main passage where we can understand and I think illustrates that, di that difference, and that is Acts chapter 6. So invite you, you were there, but I invite you to go back to Acts chapter 6. And I want to show you in Acts chapter 6 how these two offices of the church are, are to, be, to be understood and to, to be distinct. I uh, have the conviction... And I'm not I alone, but there's, there's many who hold this, that Acts chapter 6 is in many ways a prototype. The office that's described there, the, what's happening there, the setting apart of those individuals' names that we saw, those seven individuals, that, you, that, that it becomes kind of a, a prototype of the deacon office in the church. So I want to make the case to you a little bit for that being kind of the paradigm for the early church. Now, I will say this. The word uh, diakonos does not appear in that text. Okay, but then that would be a... And, and so some would argue, well, the word deacon doesn't appear in this text, so it's not legitimate to say that this is talking about the office of deacons. Um, to that, I would say that's a, that's a word concept fallacy, that even though the noun for deacon is not there. The verb is a couple of times. And I think if you get the larger picture and you go, you go, yes, I can see how the word deacon might not be there, but clearly what it's describing matches what you see elsewhere in the Bible about the office of deacons. And so let's take a look at this. So now in these days, and this is fairly early in the church's ministry, maybe within the, the first 
clearly easily within the first 10 years, I would say, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven. Indeed, um, most of the ministry is still taking place around Jerusalem at this time. So that is what is meant by now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So the church was growing. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Okay, what's this? What is the Hellenists and what are the Hebrews? Uh, my footnote here in the ESV says that is a, a complaint broke out or division was happening between Greek-speaking Jews. So Jews who um, were, you know, maybe had come to Jerusalem from far off, had heard the message about Jesus Christ, had believed in Jesus Christ, even though they were Jewish, and had come and were a part of the church's ministry in Jerusalem, but they spoke Greek. Their, their main speaking language was not, was not Hebrew or uh, Aramaic. And a complaint uh, arose between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. What was the issue? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And this means the daily distribution of food. Because if you saw earlier in, um, in Acts that the that people moved by the Spirit of God, we see this at the very end of Acts chapter 2, they were selling their, their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay, It's not socialism. People were just saying, out of my generosity and abundance, I, I want to provide for the needs of the other believers. And they did so. You see the same thing in Acts chapter um, in Acts chapter uh, uh, 4. And so there was this daily distribution of food that has been from the earliest days of the church that people generously were giving and they were distributing those to those who had need. Um, and so, but the problem was is that there was a maybe a, maybe a racial component, maybe a communication component that one group was being neglected and, and um, not getting the food. So, and it says then in verse 2, the 12, and this is the, the 12 apostles, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, and this is very interesting, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This verse was very uh, formative for me in um, uh, in in college, I was I was working, I was working at Olive Garden, and I was reading through my Bible one day, and I was wondering if I should should quit my job and and change my major. And I read this verse, and I go, "There's my I got a word from the Lord. I'm no longer going to work serve tables." So I quit working as a waiter at Olive Garden. <laughs> True story. True story. But notice what they're saying. No, well, notice the backdrop behind what's happening here is that they, the apostles, the 12, and keep in mind the church is quite large at this point. It's thousands of people in Jerusalem. Thousands of people in Jerusalem, even though the church was starting to kind of go back to their various homes or villages uh, all, over, uh, all over Israel. And the responsibility for distributing all of the, this food, this distribution of food, to the widows who needed it was being done by the apostles. And so this issue kind of created an, a, a significant issue for them as they realized actually what's happening 
is this is what's this is taking us away from what our primary task is and that is preaching the word of God. And so I think here sensitive to the working of the spirit the apostles recognize actually something is really wrong here because not that the ministry isn't valuable of distribution of food to widows it is but that it's not right for that to take away us from our primary task of preaching the word of god so it says so they said so brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom who we will appoint to this duty. Now, you see the good repute there. That's, that's a, a summary statement of one of the qualifications, right? We've seen for both offices. Are, are they above reproach? Are these the people that you could trust? Are these role models for the entire church? And so they picked out seven. And they mentioned uh, uh, Stephen. <clears throat> you see down there, skip down into verse 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, and he figures prominently um, in the next chapter, chapter 7, because he gives uh, this fire of a sermon that uh, ends up getting him killed. And then it lists some of the names of the others there. But notice verse 4. So he, he comes to the congregation, and by the way, notice who, who is it that's responsible to do the selection of these. The apostles had given the criteria, good repute. And he says, select from yourselves, pick out from among yourselves. And then, so the congregation as a whole were to say, here, I'm, let's, let's nominate this person, let's nominate this person. And they brought forward the seven, and they brought them to the apostles, and then the apostles laid their hands on and kind of commissioned them for this service. But notice what it says in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Here's a contrast, not of the ministry. By the way, how many times have you, have you said this or heard said about somebody who is a pastor or an overseer that they're in the ministry? Biblically speaking, that's not an accurate way to describe it. There's not the ministry. There's ministries, at least two. A ministry that oversees the spiritual needs of the congregation and a ministry, a diaconate, to those who oversee the physical affairs in the congregation. So we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And it gets obscured here a little bit in the English, but like in verse three, it's using the verb form for what the deacons are doing. What I calling the deacons, what these seven are doing is, is the verb form for deacon. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to, to deacon tables. That task should be given to these others. They're not saying, oh, we should be involved in the ministry and they should handle all of these kinds of things. 
No, that's a valuable ministry. And because it's a valuable ministry, we need to appoint people who are gifted for that end. And we should not be taken away from our ministry, which is the ministry of the word and in prayer. So elders, overseers, and pastors don't do the administration. Notice that elders and overseers and pastors don't do the administration of waiting on tables. Or that the, deacon, uh, the deacons here don't do the ministry of word and prayer. Okay, so there are two ministries. is the ministry of waiting on tables. That's the diaconate. And there's the ministry of word and prayer. That's elders, overseers, and pastors. And, and so I should point out, it doesn't mean that the elders, overseers, and pastors can't do any administrative things. And it doesn't mean that deacons can't do word and prayer. Because as I just mentioned before, one of the deacons, Stephen, ends up giving an amazing sermon in the next chapter. But the general distinction needs to be established that elders, overseers, pastors handle the spiritual oversight of the church and that deacons handle the material oversight of the church. So now let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and let's look at the qualifications for these deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Dignified here means honorable, reputable, serious. Not double-tongued, or as the footnote, if your text, if you have the ESV, says devious in speech. It literally means saying the same thing twice. Or to be double-tongued, speaking one thing to one person and another thing to another person. Or saying one thing but meaning another thing. Or being deceitful. Given to double talk. That's how one translation puts it. Qualifications of character. This should, this should be somebody who, who speaks the truth. Also, verse 8, not addicted to much wine. Very similar to verse 3 as not a drunkard that we saw for the qualification for an overseer. This is a very, also a very important one. Also similar to what we saw in verse 8 for an overseer. Not greedy for dishonest gain. This is a very important one for the office of, of a deacon who often were uh, elsewhere in, this, in the, the New Testament when the, it's referring to the particular office of a deacon. They're the ones that would travel from church to church, taking offerings from one church and taking it to another. Like when they had to do a special offering to take it to the, the people who experienced famine in Jerusalem, that was done by the deacons. So they had to not be greedy for dishonest gain. They had to be somebody who could, you could trust with financial decisions. You had to be somebody that you could trust with the material possessions that people were giving in service to others. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, here's one of the distinctions between the deacon and the office of overseer 
uh, elder and pastor. Remember, the office of elder, overseer, or pastor had to be able to teach. There's no qualification for a deacon to be able to teach. But that does not mean that the deacon should be wobbly on their doctrinal convictions. They must likewise have very clear doctrinal convictions. They must hold to that mystery of the faith, and they must do so with a clear conscience, without hesitation or mental reservation. Verse 10, he gives them an uh, explanation of uh, kind of a, a, a trial process, a probationary period. Verse 10, let them also be tested first, and if they prove themselves blameless, then they can serve as a deacon. Let them be tested first. So those who are identified perhaps as doing this, then you, you kind of give them a little probationary period. You give them some examples. You, you give them some, a, a task to do, and then as they perform that task and perform it well, then they can be given more opportunities to serve. Now something very interesting happens in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And then in verse 12 it says, And let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. So again, similar in qualifications, verse 12, they're similar in qualifications to what we saw with elders last week. It has to be a one-woman man. And managing their own children in their own households well. But let me go back to verse 11 because it's interesting there. Um, there are different, different ways of understanding verse 11. One, uh, and this kind of goes around the word there for wives. Some of your translation might read women. It's literally the women likewise. And the, you, the word for women there could be for a, a woman, a mature woman or a married woman it's hard to tell between the difference the difference between the two you have to tell by the context so there's two ways of understanding verse 11 and you know legitimate understanding here this is legitimate ways of translating this one way would be to say that this is the wives of the deacons the wives of the deacons so you have the interesting situation where there's no qualifications for the wives of elders, we saw in verses 1 through 7. But here, Paul is giving qualifications for the wives of deacons. The other way of understanding this would be the women, likewise, and in this case, it would mean the female deacons. So there's two ways of understanding it. This would either be the qualifications for deacons' wives, or the qualification for deaconesses. And what's usually added to that understanding, or that way of looking at that verse, is the use of deacon, the female form of deacon, uh, deaconess, in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Let me just turn there for you and just kind of read what it says. <clears throat> Verses 1 and 2. It's Paul's letter to the church at Rome. 
And he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now you can see in the footnote there, it says, or, where the word there for servant is the female form of um, diakonos. It's the female form for deacon, which is why it says deaconess. And so the understanding of this is that Phoebe, probably the letter carrier here to the, to the church at Rome, and she's probably there to take some of the offerings and some of the financial um, material things. And which is why Paul has to say, hey, I commend her to you. And she is the, and according to this understanding, she's the deaconess at the church of Sincrea. So whatever she needs from you, you help her in that. So that's the way of understanding it. So those, I just want to be honest and present to you the two ways of understanding verse 11. One is, is that it's referring to the wives of deacons. Because in verse 12, it says the deacon should be the husband of one wife. There's no mention uh, of deaconesses being the wife of one <laughs> husband. And so they understand it this way. And then there's another one that understands it as these are female deacons. And there are solid, good, doctrinally sound churches that hold that second view. Might be surprising to know that even some like John Piper or John MacArthur, they both had at their church, they would recognize the distinction between the two offices, between elder, overseer, and pastor that was limited to, restricted to qualified men as qualified in scripture. That handled the spiritual oversight of the church. And they said, as long as you maintain that distinction between elder, overseer, and pastor, and deacon as man handling the, the physical or material needs of a congregation, as long as you maintain that distinction, they would understand that as referring to deaconesses. So just so you know, there are two ways of understanding that. As what we have practiced here at Redeemer, we have, um, to err on the side of caution, we have understood it as referring to the wives of deacons, the wives of deacons. But I just want to tell you what's out there, make you aware. So notice the qualifications for the wives of deacons in verse 11, dignified, which kind of adds to the argument because in verse 8, it, you know, you already said dignified in verse 8. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So those are the qualifications between the office of deacon as distinct from the qualifications in the office of elder, overseer, and pastor. Why is this important? Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
Those who serve well at de- as deacons not only gain a good, un- uh, good standing for themselves, but also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me read to you from John Stott's commentary from Acts related to this. And he says this, a vital principle is illustrated in this incident. And here he's referring back to Acts chapter 6. A vital principle is illustrated in, in this incident, which is of urgent importance to the church today. It is that God calls all his people to ministry. That he calls different people to different ministries. And that those called to prayer in the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. Both diaconate work and elder overseer pastor work are ministries. My mom would say, my son is in the ministry, and I would go, mom, there's not just one ministry. Both of these ministries are important. Stott continues, but we do a great disservice to the church whenever we refer to the pastorate as the ministry. For example, when we speak of ordination in terms of entering the ministry, this use of the uh, definite article implies that the ordained pastorate is the only minister, ministry there is. But diakonia is the generic word for, serf, for service. All Christians without exception, without exception, being followers of him who came not only to serve but to serve, are themselves called to ministry, indeed, to give their lives to ministry. Stott continues, In particular, it is vital for the health and growth of the church that pastors and people of the local congregation learn this lesson. It's true, pastors are not the apostles. What happened in Acts chapter 6, in in many ways, is very prototypical. Because it's the apostles that are doing that. Pastors are not apostles, but the apostles are given the authority to formulate and teach the gospel. Pastors are responsible to continue that. They just expand the message of the apostles. The message that the apostles have given to us in the New Testament. That's that's what the pastoral office and job is. No new revelation. No no unique or special authority. The only authority is the word that we're proclaiming that came from the apostles themselves. But it's interesting, Stockton points out, that the apostles were not too busy with ministry, but were preoccupied with the wrong ministry. And so are many pastors. Instead of concentrating on the ministry of the word, they become overwhelmed with administration. And oftentimes this is the pastor's fault, Stott says. And in either case, the consequences are disastrous. I believe that Stott is right. The ministry of the church is done by all people. Some have a unique ministry of service, which is handling the the physical affairs of the church. And some have the unique ministry of overseeing the spiritual affairs of the church. 
and all are important because all are important to gain confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Remember, these are gifts that Christ has given to his church for his church's benefit. And so we honor that. Now, friends, I want to turn now to go to the Lord's Supper today. Again, what an amazing gift that Christ has given to us in this meal. And I want to preface it today by looking at one of the questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. And let this be our meditation as we come together to take this meal. It begins with this question, question 75. How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? And so let's say these words together. In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and take with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to eternal life with his crucified body and shed blood. Wonderful statement to remind us that indeed he has given us, given us this meal to assure us of our forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with him. In that sense, these are really means by which his grace is conveyed to us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Again, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, feel no obligation to come forward. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you get the, the invitation to come to this table, keep this in mind. That these are gifts from Christ to you to show you that by faith, not of any good works of your own, that by faith in him, you indeed receive all of those blessings. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before your table. We come before this feast that you've given to us. And we're reminded that when we take these elements by faith that Christ is spiritually present here and that we're assured of all of the benefits that we receive. So, Father, we thank you for the work of your Son. We thank you for this meal that, that commemorates that work, but that also communicates that work in grace to us. And so we come with joy and gratitude, confessing our sins and receiving 
the assurance of our forgiveness through Christ and his work. We pray this in his mighty name and all his people said, amen.